Hello everybody and welcome back to our series reading and evaluating the DeMond brothers going through their book, the most deceptively titled book I have ever read in my entire life, The Bible Proves the Teachings of the Catholic Church by quote-unquote Brother Peter DeMond. Today we are going to look at reaching what do I mean by that? Well, if your church abandons you, leaves you high and dry, just leaving all of its traditions, going off towards modernism, you're going to be tempted to start reaching really, really hard. You may have noticed over the course of this series a certain theme, a motif, if you will, of the DeMond brothers being a cautionary tale. We here at the Very Lutheran Project are providing house church resources for Christians everywhere that mean it, that want to be legitimate Christians in the face of just about every single institutional Christian group abandoning the faith for worldly morality. The DeMond brothers have been trying to respond to that happening in their church, the Roman Catholic Church, for a very long time now. And I would wager that they are doing it very, very, very wrong. Today, we are going to look at how your twisted logic, your sneaky, sneaky, sneaky little insertions of everything into the text of Scripture, your anger at everybody due to ignorance, is going to lead to, well, having to make some sort of case for your doctrine. And a lot of that is going to mean reaching. As they continue to speak about the papacy, these individuals that reject today's papacy are going to be making such massive stretches with Holy Scripture that I would not compare it to Kobe Bryant trying to get that ball into that hoop, stretching his arm as high as he can to just nudge that ball through the hoop. Oh, no, no, no. This is a toddler jumping as high as he can, and he just keeps trying, but Lord knows he's never going to get it through. Never going to get those points. Let's continue on in their book with this section. <laughs> Luke 22 teaches papal infallibility, the infallibility of the office of the Pope. Oh, really? Now, I challenge any of my listeners, go to Luke chapter 22, Open it up and read it, and show me which verse says the Bishop of Rome is infallible according to his office. Of course, no verse in any of the Bible says that. But when you look at the scriptures as pizza dough that needs to be stretched out and tossed in the air and stretched again and again and again, you'll find a way to try to kind of make it say that. Here's the pericope they're highlighting from Luke 22, verses 24 to 32. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve, dot, dot, dot. 
and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now where in the text does that say that the Bishop of Rome is infallible according to his office? Nowhere. Nowhere at all. But they did underline, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Okay, anybody reading that with an ounce of common sense would say, Yes, our Lord Christ prayed for St. Peter, saying, I want him to continue having faith, to have a strong faith that endures in trusting in Christ for salvation and service to God. According to the plain meaning of the text, you're not going to get much more out of that, but we rejoice that our Lord Christ would pray for even such a one as St. Peter. But what do the DeMond brothers have to say? This passage is fascinating. It contains a number of important truths. Before I move on, can I just say, it's irritating as snot that they've forgotten how to write an essay where you don't include your opinions on stuff. If a little kid writes a book report and he turns it into his teacher and part of the book report is just, I liked this part. I liked when the puppy came home. It was great. If you write that, you're going to get an F on your paper because your personal opinions do not matter. It is the case that you are building that you are supposed to be including here. I would suspect that a bombshell crash into the earth kind of book like the Bible proves the teachings of the Catholic Church would have better writing standards, but that's just me being crabby. Let's keep going here. First of all, there is a strife among the apostles about who will be the greatest. Jesus explains that his kingdom is not like that of the Gentiles. So Jesus is talking about how his kingdom, or church, is structured. Then Jesus says that Satan has desired to sift all the apostles in the plural, but that he has prayed for Peter, singular, that Peter's faith fail not. Okay, we reread it. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desire to have you, plural, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, singular, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Sure, St. Peter had a leadership role among the twelve apostles, and that requires having strong faith. Sure, no problem. I have no disagreements there thus far, but let's see where they take it. It's important to note that when Jesus says Satan desired to have you, the you is in the plural. This is clear in the original Greek text, but not in the English. Yep, I understand that. Satan desired to have all the apostles. Jesus says, but he prayed for Simon Peter alone, that his faith fail not. Peter, the one who receives the keys of the kingdom, also has an unfailing faith, according to the words of Jesus. Jesus says this only about Peter, clearly separating him from the rest. Maybe? We went over last week how, yes, there is Matthew 16 in which St. Peter has the distinction of being the first to receive the office of the keys. 
but it is granted to all of Christ's disciples in Matthew 18. The specific power of forgiving sins is given to all of the apostles in John chapter 20, and St. James tells Christians to confess their sins to one another in James 5 verse 16. And if there is no forgiveness there, there's no point in St. James telling us that's what we need to be doing. It is real absolution offered even from the lowest of the laymen. But given the DeMond brothers' inability to distinguish between the words first and only, they're going to build a case that this means automatically that St. Peter, because his faith does not fail, that means he's infallible. Which, again, is a severe stretch. The word infallible means cannot fail. Thus we see, right in Luke 22, the roots of the Catholic teaching on the infallibility of the Pope. This teaching on the infallibility of the Pope does not mean that a true Pope, as the successor of Peter, can never make a mistake. It does not mean that he cannot sin. What it means is that when a true Pope teaches authoritatively on faith or morals to the entire church from the chair of Peter, Jesus will not let that teaching fail. For if he did, then the church would itself be led into error and fail. Now wait, look at their logical jump. They go from stretching about what the text says to stretching about the people that they're talking about. If Jesus prayed for St. Peter's faith alone here to not fail, such that they can only conclude Jesus never prayed for the other apostles' faith to not fail, just St. Peter's, then why should this prayer extend to the papacy? If it's only for the individual man, St. Peter, why is that extended to the popes? But notice here, they'll say it's only when a true pope teaches authoritatively on faith or morals to the entire church. So they're not including the false popes of the Avignon papacy back when there were like three popes at the same time. They're not including Pope Honorius, who was a monothelite heretic condemned by ecumenical council. They're not going to include the popes that they hate. You know, Pope Francis... Pope Benny XVI, Pope JP II, and the guy before him, everybody since that dastardly Vatican II, they're going to say, oh, no, no, those guys don't have infallibility as a charism, not even in the slightest. But wait, we have more hat tricks here. Vatican Council I, a dogmatic Catholic council, put it this way. Pope Pius IX, Vatican Council I, writing... So this gift of truth and a never-failing faith was divinely conferred upon Peter and his successors in this chair. Really? You see, DeMond brothers, you guys just pointed to the grammar in the Greek that is singular. You know, St. Peter, I've prayed for your faith, that your faith fail not. Singular, 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 none of the other apostles. And now you're trying to sneak in a plural there. 
Now, when Jesus says a singular, your faith fail not, what they mean is your faith and the dude that you touch and the dude that he touches and the dude that he touches all the way down until Vatican II. All those guys after you are included in that singular Greek noun there. <laughs> of course. First we mean it's singular, then we mean it's plural. That's how we establish it. No, you're just stretching. You're stretching the meaning. You're bringing in stuff like Vatican I. That is not Bible. And you're telling me that this is the Bible proving the infallibility of the papal office? Come on. Come on, dude. It's an unfailing faith of the office of prime minister slash pope, which has been established in Peter and will carry on through his successors in that office. Not what the verse says. Remember, it's singular to Peter alone. Even in the very early church, the fathers saw this passage in Luke 22 as another proof for the papacy. Again, church fathers are not Bible. I don't care what they think half the time. They're a great reference work, but they disagree with each other all the flippin' time. But let's entertain them and see this quote from St. Ambrose. Peter, having been tempted by the devil, is set over the church. The Lord, dot, 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 ooh, DeMond Brothers, y'all are skipping some stuff, chose him as the pastor of the Lord's flock. For to him he said, But thou, when converted, confirm thy brethren. Wow, I'm not seeing St. Ambrose telling me that the office of the papacy is infallible when speaking from the chair of St. Peter. Now, real quick, as an aside, if you ask which teachings of the papacy are infallible, you're going to get two answers. You're either going to get the common sense Catholic answer of, well, all of them. You have to believe whatever the Pope says. Or, B, you're going to get the official Roman Catholic answer that it is exactly twice, both of which apply strangely solely to Marian dogmas. So you have 2,000 years, supposedly, of the papacy with only two statements that Roman Catholic uh, catechists will tell you. That's it. Those are the only two, 100%, no bones about it, no error, unfailing faith of St. Peter statements, and both of them are the ones that tell you to, you know, you really got to believe in the assumption of Mary. But note something. As they go through all sorts of little proofs here and there for Peter's prominence in the scriptures, they stretch this out in application to the papacy at large. And they barely make time to make anything resembling a case for the apostolic succession descending from the chair of St. Peter. So they have a big section on Jesus entrusts all his sheep to Peter in John 21. Okay, I can see how you can make a case for that. St. Peter had a leadership role, yep. Jesus tells Peter to rule his sheep. Really? Uh, well, they're taking the word tend or poimane, which means to pastor over, to shepherd them, and they're saying, see, rule. And that's, that's just like Revelation 2.27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's why you got to see the Pope is your king, I guess. 
they have a little section saying, oh, Peter's mentioned a hundred times. But the other guy, the, the closest is St. John, who's just named like 29 times in the Bible. So, duh, that means Peter, with more name drops, that means he's a bigger deal. <laughs> the language of the Bible repeatedly singles out Peter and sets him apart from the other apostles. Every list of the 12 apostles has Peter first. In Matthew's list, Peter is not only mentioned first, but called first or chief. John and Peter ran to the tomb of Jesus. John got there first, but waited for Peter to go on. By the way, all those are just section headers. They're just section headers for all the ink that they are spilling, telling you that St. Peter had a leadership role in the first century church, which I don't disagree with. Yep, he was more or less in charge, at least for a while. But it is a massive and unjustified stretch to say that all of a sudden now this validates every single statement on the papacy. Every single argument about his infallibility, him being the king of the church, or if we go off of Unam Sanctum, the king of the entire stinking world. That is not in the text. The Bible does not prove that particular teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. In a book that says the Bible proves the teachings of the Catholic Church, I would expect somebody to spend a lot less time establishing St. Peter's dominant position over the early church and a lot more time explaining how this stretches out to all of the dudes that have sat in the chair over in Rome. Now they do try to make a little bit of a case for apostolic succession, but it is a poor one. Peter takes the prime role in the replacement of Judas. The replacement of Judas shows apostolic succession. Oh really? Okay, well let's, let's see how they go here. In Acts 1, we read about the decision to replace the deceased Judas with another apostle. Peter stands up in the midst of the rest and directs the course of action to replace Judas. Yes, he does. Under some guidance, but yes, he does. St. Peter had a leadership role. Mm-hmm. And I love their translation notes here from Acts 1, 15 to 20. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about a hundred and twenty. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guided to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and St. Luke tells us that the man died. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. And his bishopric let another take. Hmm. That word, bishopric, see, they're very selective about their translations. It is the New King James, or the Dewey Rames, or the Webster's translations. Those are the only three that I can find that say the word bishopric here. The others refer to an office, the office of overseer or elder, not necessarily a bishop. 
But remember, they want you to look at these words and see the word bishop and go, oh, oh, oh my gosh. This means that Peter selected successors to offices. He had the right to appoint bishops, which means that every single pope for the past 2,000 years had this power. Oh, the Bible has proven the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. And no, it hasn't. But that's not going to stop them from stretching the text out. This clearly demonstrates Peter's position of authority as the first pope, but it also shows us apostolic succession. In other words, the positions of the apostles, the bishops, continue on with replacements after these apostles or first bishops died. Speaking of Judas' office, Acts one twenty, let his bishopric take another. The bishops were to be replaced down through the history as the church continued its mission, so that when St. Peter himself dies in Rome as the first bishop, his place as prime minister and leader of the Christian church would be filled by another bishop of Rome, the second pope. His name was Linus. Now, this text doesn't say that whatsoever. You are stretching and reaching. You're getting your little ladder up there trying to get the ball through the hoop, but you got nothing, bud. Nothing. The fact that St. Peter did this in submission to prophecy, meaning he went to a psalm, said, mm, the psalm says this, we should follow what it says, means that the Bible holds authority over whatever St. Peter says. And remember, who chose the apostles? Was it St. Peter or Jesus? Going back to the last episode recording this, pick one. If I recall correctly, our Lord Jesus picked the apostles. He set the standard. St. Peter is just following the standard, and he's following what the Bible says. Wow, a pope, I guess, if you're going to call St. Peter a pope, following what the Bible says instead of his own authority? I wish all of them did that. Maybe we wouldn't be having any problems or schisms in the church if all of the popes followed the example of St. Peter and just did and said what the Bible tells them. That would be pretty nice, wouldn't it? But anyway, they know that their argument here is trash. So they go right back to establishing a case for St. Peter having a leadership role in the church. In Acts 2, we see St. Peter's primacy as the Pope in his long speech to the Jews. Yep, that happened. Next section. In Acts 4, Peter's primacy as Pope is shown in his speech to the leadership of the Jews. Or maybe it's just happenstance, but whatever. Then you go to this interesting case here. Peter gives out the punishment of the church in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Really? In Acts 5, we read that two Christians, Ananias and Sapphira, sold a piece of land, but by fraud kept back part of the money. It was St. Peter who pronounced upon them the stern judgment of God in the church. Really, St. Peter said unto her, Sapphira, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And great fear came upon all the earth and upon as many as heard these things. Are they saying that St. Peter got God to kill Ananias and Sapphira? And God was like, oh, oh yes, sir. 
Peter said something needs to be done. He's pronounced punishment, so I gotta kill these people for him. Uh, you're the leader of the church after all, sir. <laughs> Is that what they're trying to say? <laughs> Peter decided this would be the punishment, so God followed along. Come on. Come on, guys. Oh, and then, by the way, they just outright lie. Or they flub. I hope it's just an honest mistake, but they say the first Gentile convert is told specifically to go to St. Peter, the head of the church. That's just wrong. The first Gentile convert before then was the Ethiopian eunuch going to Philip, not to St. Peter. But oh well, right? <laughs> The vision that the old law's restrictions against unclean foods is finished, which signified the end of the old law, is given to St. Peter, the head of the church. Really, I happen to recall in the Gospel of St. Mark, our Lord Jesus declaring all foods clean. That's Mark 7, verse 19. But then they keep going. St. Peter clearly has the primacy at the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15. The promulgation of the decision reached at the Council of Jerusalem shows the power of the church and of ecumenical councils. Maybe. And then they conclude this section on the papacy here saying, We've seen the undeniable evidence from the Bible that St. Peter was the first pope. We've seen evidence and proof from the words of Jesus, from all four Gospels, from the Acts of the Apostles, from the Fathers, and more. It's a fact of history that St. Peter died in Rome as its first bishop and that he was succeeded by other popes down through history. They assumed the office of St. Peter as the leader and governor of Christ's kingdom, his church, just like Eliakim succeeded to Shebna's place of prime minister in the kingdom of David. Thus ends their proof texts for the papacy, which is all reaching. They are saying that because St. Peter had a leadership role, in this case being poorly shown, because they just get a lot of stuff wrong and misunderstand a lot of what that office entailed, namely submission to Holy Scripture, they're saying that you automatically, mysteriously, have to jump from that to believing everything every Pope has ever said. Provided, of course, it's the popes that the DeMond brothers like, and only when it fits the DeMond brothers' prerequisites for when a pope is doing a hecking infallibility. They're asking you to pick them up, like a toddler with a basketball, reach up for them, you know, get on that little stool and let them put the ball through the hoop, and then you can go, yay, Catholicism! You might also notice that they don't include their set of Acontism in this section, which leaves open the possibility that someone's going to go, Wow, so I should submit to the Pope. Oh, dude, Pope Francis said that Luther didn't make an error when he said we are justified by faith alone. Oh, cool. Oh, wait, Vatican II? Oh, man, the Pope's in there talking about me being the Christian brother. Even if I'm not part of the Roman Catholic Church, I get to be a Lutheran. <laughs> cool! I hope that happens so often that it makes these guys' heads spin. Because you know what happens when you reach this much? Eventually you fall over. 
and we're going to see some falling over next week as we go over their really, really, really bad attempt at uh, debunking justification by faith alone. We will catch that next week. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.